0: So, let me pray, and then we will start, okay? Heavenly Father, we gather in this place to fill our minds with more truth about you and your word. Specifically tonight, as we study the doctrine of Scripture, which is one of the foundational beliefs that we have as Christians... I pray that we would leave here tonight encouraged that your word is enough not only to continue to mature and sanctify our hearts but to transform those people that we know who are lost. So we ask that in this next few moments that we have together that you would just wash over us with a just a spirit of encouragement and a spirit of confidence. Uh, That what we do every single week in this room and what we gather to do on a weekly basis through precept Bible studies, through uh, community groups, through our Wednesday night Bible studies, through other Bible studies that people have going on in the community, uh, that we would just remember that it is all worth it to do those things because it gives us more knowledge and reveals more of your character in our lives. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you have a handout. If you did not grab a handout, you can uh, grab one on that little podium. There's also pens. I intentionally did not do slides to force you to write stuff down. Because uh, I actually think you'll retain it better that way. Um, you don't have to write things down, but you might want to. I'm going to give you the outline, and then we will jump into it tonight. Number one, we're going to talk about the canon, which is we're going to be answering the question what actually belongs in our Bible? Or, in other words, what is in our Bible versus what is not? Number two, authority how do we know the Bible is God's Word? Number three, clarity who can understand God's Word? Number four, necessity why do we spend so much time talking about the Bible? Why is it necessary? And then number five, sufficiency which kind of piggybacks a little bit about what I talked about shortly in my sermon this morning, is the Bible really enough? So that's kind of going to be our outline. On the back of your handout, if you got the one that was copied correctly, which was the one not copied by me, there is a few resources. These are not exhaustive. These are just a handful of resources that I would recommend you take a look at, Some of them are gonna be really heavy and you're gonna look on Amazon and say 800 pages, no way. That's fine. I'm just throwing resources out there for you to be aware of that can help you further uh, your study of this particular doctrine. So I'm gonna begin with a few statistics for you. This study was a partnership between Barna and the American Bible Society And this study is called The Bible in America. It was a six-year study, okay? Here are some of the survey results. Americans who believe the Bible is a holy book, 81% of people in America believe that. Now, this this, uh, survey is dated to, I think, maybe 2016, 2017, so it's a few years old. Elders, that is people born prior to 1946, 88% of people in that category believe the Bible is a holy book. Millennials born 84 to 2002, according to this survey, 71 percent believe the Bible is a holy book. Americans who have a Bible in their home, almost 90 percent. Average number of Bibles in a home, three. Top ten Bible minded cities in America Chattanooga, Birmingham, Roanoke slash Lynchburg, Virginia, Shreveport, Louisiana, Tri Cities. What's the Tri Cities in Tennessee, Nick? Something along those lines. Okay. So, Tri-Cities in Tennessee, Charlotte, North Carolina, Little Rock, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Knoxville, Tennessee, Greenville, South Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, Lexington, Kentucky. Those are the top ten Bible-minded cities in America, according to this survey. Bottom ten Bible-minded cities in America. Salt Lake City, Utah. That really shouldn't be that surprising. Phoenix, Arizona, Hartford, Connecticut, San Francisco, California. Las Vegas, Nevada. Buffalo, New York. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Providence, Rhode Island. Boston, Massachusetts. Albany, New York. This has really nothing to do with the study. It's just fun facts. Americans who read the Bible at least once a week. In 1991, 45% of, of Americans would have read the Bible at least once a week. By 2009, surprisingly, that was up to 46%. In 2016, down to 33%. Americans who believe there is no God behind the Bible, in 2011, it represented only 10% of the American population. By 2016, it was up to 22%. Americans who strongly believe that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches. In 1991, it was 46% of people. In 2016, it was down to 33% of people. In addition, I would say that not only is this the case for uh, Americans, this could be the case for many churches. The extent that churches place on the priority of God's word, I would say, has shrunk over the years. We talked about it briefly this morning. uh, But the Bible, in some churches, is more of a kind of like a devotional thing where you might pick a few Bible verses and then you preach a sermon about how to be a, a kinder person based on a verse in Proverbs. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but obviously if that's all you do, you've really turned the Bible into this moralistic How to be a better person and you have ignored um, obviously the gospel like we talked about this morning so that's why i think that if you're going to pick five or six key doctrines as we are doing you have to start with scripture so there's actually somewhat of a logical flow to the way we're doing things i think we did have to switch a couple because somebody was going to be out of town but but we knew that scripture was going to be the top one that we study so Let's talk for a few moments about how we got the Bible that we have. If you look at your table of contents, you will see 39 books in your Old Testament, 27 books in your New Testament. How did we get those books? For the Old Testament, it's actually a much easier discussion because you have God Revealing, throughout the Old Testament, different uh, points of revelation to certain individuals. For instance, you have the Ten Commandments. Then you have the entire Pentateuch. Then you have the prophets. And so for the Old Testament, it's pretty simple. The church gathered, really ancient Israel gathered, all of these words of the Lord spoken through the prophets, given to Moses... Uh, given to jeremiah given to isaiah and they said because god as the mouthpiece of these or the prophets are the mouthpieces of god they gathered them all together and that's pretty much how you got your old testament now your new testament is a little bit more uh complicated and laborious and that's actually where i want to spend most of our time talking about how did we get matthew to revelation now, I'm indebted to my, one of my New Testament professors who gave this excellent overview of the canon, and I'm going to use a lot of, of his material tonight. Oh, by the way, nothing in any of this talk is original to me. It goes back to what I said this morning. There's nothing new under the sun, the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. All I'm doing is reiterating what faithful teachers throughout the history of the church have done. So there's really not much here uh, that you could give me credit for. Um, so here we go. How did we get these books that ended up becoming what we would call authoritative for us as Christians? First, you have a period of what we would call the, the usage and collection of the New Testament. Now, this is taking place around 90 to 180, okay, roughly speaking. So, kind of like what we're studying, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those are basically the, the latter books that are included in our canon. So after all these books have been written down, you begin to see these letters circulating throughout various churches. And as these letters are circulating, people are picking up on the fact that you'll have John's gospel in all of these churches. And it's being used regularly And you might have 1 Corinthians being used regularly, not only in Corinth, but spread out throughout other churches. And so you have this early group of authors known as the Apostolic Fathers, okay? And they are writing, they're not writing canonical books. They're writing additional information to help Christians in the early church. And all of these Apostolic Fathers are unanimous in saying that the Old Testament is Scripture. In other words, it's divine. It is inspired. So that's that's an easy one. But then many New Testament books are referred to as well, even though at this point they have not been deemed as Scripture because they're circulating throughout all of these early churches, okay? So as you begin to read these apostolic fathers, and you don't have to, just take my word for it. If you'd like to, you can. Almost all of these early authors include... The four Gospels, the letters of Paul, the general epistles, which would be James, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And these are all showing up as independent collections in all of the early churches. And most New Testament documents are actually being quoted by these authors. And they're occasionally, not across the board, but they are occasionally at this point referred to as Scripture. Justin Martyr, who is a very early uh, Christian apologist in the early 2nd century, he is actually the first to call the Gospels and Revelation Scripture. So he's the first to do that. This is all happening very early, 90 to 180 A.D. So you have this usage being done in many of the churches, and they're collecting all of these writings, and as the people are... Are hearing sermons based off some of these texts and then reading the Apostolic Fathers people are picking up on all of these books that we now know as included in our Canon and then you begin to have these lists that begin to emerge and these lists start taking place around 180 and they go basically to around 225 AD this is the period that we would call the emerging Canon there is a list of books in the Roman Church that was dated to about 180 to 200, known as the Muratorian Canon. Why does that matter? Because in that canon list, you have four Gospels, you have all of Paul's letters, you have Hebrews, you have First and 2 John, you have Jude and Revelation. And this is being used, this list, in the Roman church. Now, why is the Roman church so important? Because lots of people live in Rome. All right, so it's kind of a definitive early list of New Testament books. Then you have these early writers like Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria. I'm not going to get into all of their teachings. Tertullian. These are early church fathers that are vouching for this original list that was given in the early church. In fact, Tertullian is the first church father term the phrase new testament and he dies around 225 AD so you already have the term new testament being used as early as 225 then as we continue to progress in history you have a period known as the closed canon this is taking place around 225 to 400 AD and you begin to pick up on some of these writers that you've heard of origin all right, everything in his canon or that he talks about. Whoa, everything but oh no, everything but Hebrews. And we'll talk about why Hebrews was so not controversial, but why it was so uh, at least questioned early on. He has everything but Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude. Dionysius is another early church father. They have all these collections going around. Eusebius, he's one of the earliest. Church historians, you could read information uh, from Eusebius. He has everything but James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude. He says is accepted by most, but disputed by some. And then you have Athanasius, and he's really important. In three sixty seven A.D., he wrote this letter, and it was the first letter to include all twenty seven books that we now include in canon. So he's the first one to use the term canon to refer to a restricted list of authoritative books. This is happening at 367 AD. The history behind all this is, is really important. So after that, you then have these church councils that begin to affirm and make decisions about what should be included within the canon. The Council of Hippo in 393, the Council of Carthage in 397, they're affirming this list of 27 books. Augustine, who you know, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce it, he comes in and says nothing is to be read in the church under the name of divine scripture except these 27 books. And this council officially closed the canon. So you've got, by 397 A.D., the 27 books. Now, we could go a lot more into uh, the history of it, but what I want you to see just from this very, very brief, broad outline is that this was not just some uh, mechanical process where God told the apostles, these are the 27 books. God allowed the church Okay to have a role in what would become known as the New Testament canon, all under his provision, all under his sovereignty, and all under his providence. But God used these key men, these key teachers in the early history of the church to help solidify what was already the inspired words of our New Testament canon. So this is in no way um, a man-made Completely man-made process, but God, in fact, does use his people within the church to accomplish his purposes, as he has always done. And he did it through the construction of the canon as well. So, quickly, what actually determined what got in and what was left out? Because we're going to talk in a minute about there were books that were left out. Here's the principles. Apostolicity. In other words, they either had to be written by an apostle or directly connected to an apostle in some way. A great example of this would be Mark. Mark is not an apostle, but we know that Mark is writing down everything Peter tells him. That's how we get Mark's gospel. So they either have to be by an apostle or directly connected to an apostle in some way. Number two, Antiquity, believe it or not, the older the document is, the more likely it was to be included. This is why when you get into, if you ever watch anything on the History Channel or things that come on at Easter time, the reason the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, all of these apocryphal documents, even though they might be interesting to read, one of the reasons we don't include them in our canon is because they're really new in terms of dating. They are far newer than any of the New Testament documents that we have in our canon. Number three, this should be pretty obvious, orthodoxy. What do these letters teach about Jesus? If there's any document that would have Jesus sinning, any document that would reject the virgin birth or anything like that, those are not going to be included in our canon. Number four, universal. The old term for this would be Catholic. Not Roman Catholic, but meaning universal. The more widely read, the more known, the more used across churches and worship services and teaching, the more likely a book was to be respected and considered authoritative. And then number five, does it bring spiritual value to the individuals and the community? So apostolicity, antiquity, orthodoxy, catholic meaning universal and then spiritual value to individuals and communities so that brings up the question that i know you're asking what about these apocryphal books they're included in the catholic bible they're not included in our bible so we have to ask ourselves a question why and simply put let me say this on the front end i'm not saying that these books might not have value like it's not they would not be taboo in the sense of i wouldn't waste your time reading uh the book of islam for spiritual growth obviously or the book of mormon right all right that's pretty obvious you might learn some things as you read these apocryphal books i'm not saying you can't learn something we're simply saying they're not inspired and not authoritative Why is that the case? Well, they don't claim uh, the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. They were not regarded by Jesus as God's word. Jesus is never mentioning any of those books, whereas he quite regularly mentions all of the Old Testament, and he says it's authoritative. In fact, he came to fulfill it. So they're not considered or regarded by Jesus as God's Word. They're not considered Scripture by Jesus or any of the other New Testament authors because some of these books are circulating even as our canon is developing. So it's not that they're so much... I mean, they are older, but they're not like so old as to just be thrown out. And then really, at the end of the day, the reason we don't affirm these apocryphal books is they contain teaching that we would consider inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Now, you talk to a Roman Catholic about this, obviously, they're going to disagree. But this is how we come to know what we believe about the apocryphal books. So, that's what's in our Bible. We have 66 books. Now, the question becomes, they're in there, how do we know that those books that are in the Bible... Are actually God's Word so now we move on to authority in the Old Testament thus says the Lord is a very important phrase the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking as the mouthpiece of God so simply put the Old Testament this is really easy because Moses is speaking on behalf of God Therefore, what he says is authoritative for Israel. What Jeremiah says is authoritative for Israel and therefore authoritative for us. But in the New Testament, we have even more evidence of this. I don't have time to read all of these passages. 2 Timothy 3.16 is one of the foundational texts that we often use. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." Second Peter, one, 2 Peter 1-2. That's not the right reference. 1 Timothy five eighteen. Obviously, I wrote that one down wrong. Have you ever done that before, like you meant to send a Bible verse to somebody, and it was like, a verse from Leviticus talking about like having blood and you're like, oops, that's not what I meant. You know, that's a really extreme example. But uh, 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, this is Timothy talking, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborers deserves his wages. I, the, the actual verse is not as important as the opening phrase. For the scripture says so these new testament writers are already saying everything that the old testament says which has been um, confirmed by jesus and deemed authoritative by jesus is automatically authoritative for you so the first point for authority is that the bible and we're going to get into how this is kind of a circular argument but number one the bible claims it for itself okay it's authoritative because the Bible says it's authoritative. And we'll, we'll get into a moment why that's actually sufficient. Number two, we're convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's Word as we read the Bible. I talked about this this morning. That's one of the roles of the Spirit. As you read God's Word, He illuminates your heart and He helps drive home the point in your heart and mind that what you are reading is, in fact, God's Word. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I would just write these references down. You can come back to them later. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So one of the roles of the Spirit is to teach you that what you're reading is in fact authoritative for you. Number three, Scripture is self-attesting. So if we as Christians are going to appeal to the Scriptures, to God's Word as the highest authority in our life, then we have to make this circular argument that the Bible is authoritative because the Bible says so. Because if you don't make that argument, then what you are saying is some other authority is what tells me God's word is the highest authority, which would then make no sense. So if you deny that scripture is your highest authority, or if you deny that you believe that because God's word says it, then what you're saying is some other man-made source is the one who gives you confidence that God's word is God's word. And you wouldn't want that to be the case. Science is not what tells us that God's Word is God's Word. Logic is not what teaches us or tells us that God's Word is God's Word. Human reason, none of those things ultimately tell us that God's Word is God's Word. God's Word tells us that it is God's Word. You might be thinking, that is a circular argument. Yes, it is a circular argument. We believe the Bible is God's Word because it says it. That's not invalid, though. All arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that authority for proof. So this is not unique to our belief about the Bible. If science is your highest authority, why do you believe that? Because you appeal to science as your highest authority. If logic is your highest authority, then you are appealing to logic as your highest authority. So this is not a unique claim To bible believing christians this is a unique claim to anyone who would claim any type of highest authority whatever that highest authority is you have to appeal to it because it's your highest authority so it's self-attesting but it's also true we know god cannot lie or speak falsely Therefore, all the words in Scripture are true and without whoa, without error in any part. And we're going to talk more about that point in a minute. Let me just read Psalm twelve six. By the way, if I were just to just come up here and give you a lecture without going back to God's Word, I'm proving to you that the Bible is not actually our highest authority. So we better be diving into this text to come to the belief that we have that the Bible is... The highest authority. Psalm twelve six. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 30, 15. Of course it would be on that page. Here we go. The leech. What? <laughs> See what I'm talking about when you write these down wrong? Hey, God's word is true because God's word says it's true, regardless of if Proverbs 30 is the wrong reference, okay? So God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. No new fact could prove otherwise. It just couldn't because we appeal to God's word as the highest authority. Therefore, the written scripture becomes our final authority for everything that we believe about God. This brings up the question of the popular or unpopular phrase inerrancy." Now, what I would suggest that you write down is the Chicago statement on inerrancy." and you give that document a, a thorough reading on your own spare time. What inerrancy means is that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. This is what we mean by inerrancy. Now, there are some who deny inerrancy. In fact, there are many who deny inerrancy. Many um, New Testament, Old Testament scholars, uh, a popular phrase to use by one very well-known New Testament scholar, um, he believes that he, he will not affirm inerrancy Instead, he uses the phrase, I believe that we have the Bible that God intended for us to have. Which, I mean, is true. But that brings in a whole other issue. So why, why does inerrancy matter so much? Number one, I, would, I really suggest that you read that statement, Chicago statement on inerrancy. If you deny inerrancy, a moral problem really ultimately confronts us. We're going to say that we imitate God and and somehow he intentionally lies in small matters throughout the scriptures. Personally for me, if I were to deny inerrancy, that is the the belief that uh, the Bible is true in everything that it says and it's not contrary to fact in any way. If I were to actually believe that, the way my mind works is I would begin to wonder and doubt if I could actually trust God on lots of other things in addition to God's Word. And ultimately, to deny inerrancy is to make our human minds the standard of truth. If we deny inerrancy, then we must also say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. Now, what we are not saying when we say inerrancy is that all of the people that copied the scrolls down throughout the centuries could never make a mistake That's not what we're saying that is not what inerrancy is about there's a whole branch of scholarship known as textual criticism which basically takes early documents and compare or like let's say an early copy of a section of john's gospel dated to 125 a.d and then they'll find another copy that they find as they discover these documents, another copy of John's Gospel from 240 A.D., and they line them up side by side, assuming they have the same passage, and they will see that in one copy, there was a word spelled this way, and in another copy, there was a word spelled this way. This does not have anything to do with inerrancy. And I can't get into the, because we don't have time, But just know that of all the New Testament manuscripts that we have, there's over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts that we have. Almost all of the mistakes, and I use that term in quotes, because almost all of the mistakes are grammatical, very low-level mistakes. A period instead of a comma, a question mark instead of an exclamation mark, even though we don't have exclamation marks. I'm just using that as an example none of them alter theologically anything significant in any of our New Testament documents. In fact, the two biggest disagreements we have you can actually find in your Bible, Mark 16, 9 to 20, we call that the later ending of Mark, and then the story in John 8 about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. And there are in your Bibles footnotes to tell you these were not found in the earliest Manuscripts that we have. So, just know that inerrancy does not mean that John uh, originally put a period here, but this scribe put a comma here. That's not what we mean. We said in the original manuscripts, it does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Number three, clarity. Clarity. Who can understand the Bible? Here's the definition of clarity. The Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Again, the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help and being willing to to follow it. Now this does not mean that someone who's coming off the street and has never picked up God's word before is immediately going to be an expert on Leviticus 1 through 8. That's not what we mean. We mean that the Bible is understandable to someone at least understandable enough for them to have a clear understanding of Of the gospel. About the life and the ministry of Jesus. Although the Bible in itself is written clearly. We just read the passage in 1 Corinthians 2. So we know it's written clearly. But we can also affirm that the Bible itself will not be understood rightly. By those who are unwilling to receive its teaching. And we don't want to not give credit to the holy spirit in his role in helping people to understand the spirit excuse me help help them to understand god's word in terms of how they can repent of their sins and believe in faith in christ this again does not mean that we don't use commentaries it's not mean that there are this is not saying that there are not passages of scripture that are debated or that we have a hard time really clarifying what the biblical author is teaching, but the Bible is understandable. Deuteronomy chapter six tells us this, verses six and seven. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses thought that the words that he had at this time in terms of how God had revealed his revelation to his prophets, he thought that up to this point, it was understandable for children to be able to know what they needed to know about how to relate to God. So I use this Old Testament passage just as an illustration. If Moses can say authoritatively as the mouthpiece of God, teach this to your children, bind it on the doorposts of your house, put it as frontlets between your eyes, he fully affirmed in saying these things that the Bible is understandable for all people. Again, this does not downplay the role of teachers, the role of pastors, the role of you discipling a new believer in the faith, or you evangelizing a lost person. This does not mean that those people are not necessary. When we talk about clarity, we're simply saying it's understandable. The basics of the biblical message are understandable. Now, there are two words that help us kind of unpack this idea of clarity the first word is hermeneutics the second word is exegesis these are kind of fancy words but they're important hermeneutics is the study of the correct method of interpretation so within your bible you have different genres of books You have the law. You have the prophets. You have wisdom literature. You have gospels. You have historical narrative. You have epistles. You have apocalyptic literature. You have all of these different genres. And in hermeneutics, you learn basic principles to help you interpret all of these different types of genre. So, we don't read Isaiah's prophecy the same way that we read the Gospel of Luke, because they're two different types of literature. Doesn't mean they're not authoritative. Doesn't mean they're not clear. It simply means that if you're reading, for example, if you check out a uh, a uh, who's a famous fiction author. I don't read fiction. That's why I need help. Who? Stephen King, John Grisham. All right, You don't read John Grisham the same way you read the newspaper. They're different types of genre. You bring different eyes. You bring a kind of a different mind as you read those documents. They're not all the same. The same way with your Bible. It, again, we're not belittling the authority of it, the clarity of it, any of that. We're simply saying if you're going to read um, Leviticus... The same way that you read Mark's gospel, then you're going you're to be confused. Because Mark's gospel is the new covenant. Discussing the new t- covenant. Leviticus is very much concerned about the old covenant. So we have these different types of genre. And there are all sorts of resources out there that will help you understand how to read Song of Solomon, for instance. You don't read song of solomon the same way you read the book of acts pretty sure all right and yes i've had tons of people ask me when am i doing a sermon series on song of solomon never okay i'm kidding i'm kidding not till i'm far more mature in the faith how about that okay so different methods of interpretation that's called hermeneutics but then there's exegesis that is the process of interpreting a specific text of scripture That is what takes place when you as a community group leader prepare your lesson. That's what takes place every week as I prepare my sermons. I am taking a passage of scripture and I am attempting to interpret that text of scripture based on the principles of hermeneutics, based on the genre that I'm in, trying to glean from the text what it actually meant to the original hearers. See, that's that's where exegesis becomes really important. We want to take what the initial biblical author was saying to his audience and keep it within that realm of interpretation. Because the interpretation does not change. What John is writing to the community in 1 John is the same thing that he's writing to you and me. The interpretation doesn't change. The application is what changes. How we apply it is different. But what it means is what it means. Now that's, it, you know, that's, that's an evangelical belief. There are some traditions that believe in what is known as reader response criticism. In other words, they would read a verse and say, what does that mer- verse mean to you? I don't care what it means to you. You shouldn't care what it means to you. You should care What is John saying to the people that he's writing to in the first century that are dealing with false teaching? This is what he's saying. Okay, now how do I make the connection to my life in 2022? So there is interpretation and there is application. They are two different things. Do not jump to the application without doing the harder work of figuring out what did this author mean when he wrote it. So we have hermeneutics and exegesis so i want you to leave on this point about clarity with this because i kind of talked out of both sides of my mouth who can understand the bible everyone can understand the bible but that in no way means that is not that it is not a difficult document to learn study and meditate on number four Why is the Bible necessary? Why do we structure every one of our worship services around God's Word? Why do we read so much in Scripture or in the service? Why do we post Bible verses during the uh, interludes or whatever the... That's not the right word. In the bridges of our songs when no one's singing and there's just music being played. Why are we posting Scripture passages up there during that time? Why are we praying in response to... Isaiah, this morning, as Nick led us into uh, our prayer of confession. Why are my sermons built off the text that is read at that podium rather than just me deciding Saturday night? I think I want to talk about having a great marriage, and I'm not opposed to that. Why? Why is the Bible necessary? The Bible's necessary, number one, for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, number two, for knowing God's will. But it's not actually necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and God's moral laws. We know that from Romans 1, actually. So the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. Romans 10, I am actually going to read these passages and hope that I wrote them down correctly. And I'm pretty sure Romans 10 is right. It is necessary for knowing the gospel. I read some of it this morning. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's necessary for knowing the gospel now caveat you don't physically have to have your eyes on the bible in order to be converted to faith in christ in fact many of us would probably say we were converted to faith in christ by somebody passing down to us the truth of the gospel whether that be a sunday school teacher friend mom dad but those gospel presentations, even though they might not have literally been, you know, turn your Bibles to Romans 10, they were all based on God's Word, or at least they should have been. Shame on them if they weren't. So it is necessary for knowing the gospel. Number two, it's necessary for maintaining spiritual life. We have this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, in the temptation of Jesus. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We grow as Christians through studying God's word. That's why it's necessary. It's also necessary for knowing God's will. Psalm 119, the great, great chapter about really just the beauty and majesty of God's word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek after Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. I could keep going. But it is necessary for knowing God's will. Generally, for knowing God's will. I'm not saying that before you're child goes off to college and they're trying to figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives that they have to find this one verse that just nails it that they are supposed to be a marine biologist I use a really extreme example I love marine biologists by the way I'm not speaking ill of them at all that's not what we mean, well, I mean what? we talk about this all the time what is God's will for our life? Matthew 28 19 and 20 Go and make disciples of all nations, which you can do as a nurse, as a doctor, as a teacher, as a marine biologist. However, animals don't have souls, but nevertheless, um, you can't evangelize the shark that you're trying to save. But there are two, um, number two. So the Bible is necessary for knowing God's will, maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing um, the gospel. It's also not necessary... To know that he exists and to know some of his attributes it's not necessary for that how do we know that the the proof text for this the most famous passage is romans chapter 1 where paul is building his case that all of humanity is guilty before god he says this for what can be known about god is plain to them general revelation and special revelation general revelation is knowledge of god's existence his character his moral law which comes through creation to all of humanity this is what we mean by general revelation there's also special revelation god's word addressed to specific people such as the bible the words of the old testament prophets The New Testament apostles, the words of God spoken in personal address, like at Mount Sinai or at the baptism of Jesus. General revelation, knowledge of God's existence, character, and moral law, which comes through creation to all of humanity. So you can know, a person can know that God exists apart from God's word. They cannot be converted the faith in Christ, except through special revelation. That is an understanding of the gospel, which is why, brothers and sisters, missions is so important. Because if we were to believe that people that never hear the good news are just included in heaven one day, if that's a belief, and it's a quite prevalent belief if that were to be true why do missions just stop if god is just going to put everyone in who never hears the gospel then we should shut it all down and leave them not knowing because once they know and they don't choose to respond in repentance and faith do you see my point So unreached people groups, this is why we try to harp on this. It matters because they need to hear the gospel. If we believe that general revelation was simply enough, then let's just shut it all down. Let's bring all of our missionaries home. Bring them home. Not necessary. Let's just keep everyone ignorant about the gospel because if general revelation is enough to save people then that's what we should do. We should not tell our friends. We should not tell our neighbors. We should not tell our coworkers. We should steal all the Bibles from all of their houses that they're not reading. So we can keep them in ignorance. Because if general revelation is enough to save them, then why why even have this meeting tonight? It's not enough to save them. So we take the gospel to the nations. It is necessary for salvation. But it is not necessary to make a person guilty before God. General revelation is enough for that. Number five, quickly. Sufficiency. So why is it necessary? We covered it. Number five. This is where we want to leave on a high note. Is the Bible enough? Is the Bible enough? Sufficiency. Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And I'll unpack that in a moment. And it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Again, definition. Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. Here's what I mean by redemptive history. When Moses is speaking, Moses doesn't have the New Testament. So Israel is not expected to affirm the New Testament when Moses is speaking, because all they have when Moses is speaking is the Ten Commandments and then later the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So at each stage of redemptive history, God's people have what they need in that moment to believe in God, to trust Him, and to obey Him. And throughout the storyline of the Bible, that begins to have more and more things included in it. Ten Commandments, then the Pentateuch, then the Prophets, then all of the writings, then the New Testament. So at each stage in redemptive history within the life of God's people they had what they needed and it now for us contains all of the words of God that we need for salvation for trusting in him and for being obedient to him. I already read the second Timothy passage James chapter 1 verse 18 Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First Peter, chapter one, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So when we say the Bible is sufficient, we mean we can find all that God has said on topics and that we can find answers to our questions. This does not mean that you are going to find an answer to every single question you could ever have. It's not what we mean. But we can find all that God has said on topics and we can find answers to our questions when we dig into God's word. Man cannot add on his initiative any words to those that God has already spoken. The only one that can do that is God himself. And God did that through the stages of redemptive history. He gave the people the Ten Commandments. He gave them the Pentateuch. He gave them the prophets. He gave them all the historical books of the Old Testament. He gave them the Gospels. He gave them the Epistles. He gave them revelation. Man cannot add on his own initiative any words to those that God has already spoken. Only God himself can do that. Why does the sufficiency of Scripture matter so much? Here are some points of application. When we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, it encourages us to discover what God would have us to think or do. And we should be encouraged That everything god wants to tell us about that question is to be found in scripture now i don't mean you know should i plant this type of grass in my backyard or that grass that's not what i'm talking about spiritual value what you know those types of things so it it encourages us to discover what god would have us to think or do And we should be encouraged that everything God wants to tell us about that question is to be found in Scripture. Number two, it reminds us to add nothing to Scripture and to consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. This is something that I have to watch myself on as somebody who loves to read. Yes, loves to read God's Word, but also loves to read other books that help me understand God's Word better or that created me... um, you know excitement and joy about being a christian i have to remember that even as i read those commentaries even as I, as i read those books by you know old dead puritan men as great as those books are they're not authoritative for my life they're not the canon they're not inspired so it reminds us to add nothing to scripture and to consider no other writings of equal value to scripture number three God does not require us to believe anything about Himself or His redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. Number three, God does not require us to believe anything about Himself or His redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. So if you have some insight that you just believe and it's not found in Scripture... Don't expect me to affirm or believe it. I'm not required to do that. Show me in God's Word how you came to that conclusion about what it is that you believe. Number four no modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in authority. No modern revelations from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture in their authority. That actually was number four. I think I said it was number five, but that's number four. Number five, nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture explicitly or by implication. I can't just make up things that you're doing and say that's sin if Scripture doesn't explicitly say that it's sin or by implication. And there's lots of things that we can look at and say, well, the Bible doesn't say this is sin, but by implication, we could assume, based on how we understand God's word, that that behavior would be sinful. So this is not an excuse to just start doing whatever you want because the Bible doesn't say explicitly don't do this. If it's implied, it would still be considered sin. Nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture either explicitly or by implication. So the first one was nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture explicitly or by implication. But the next one is nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. This is what Paul talks about. You can't bind people's consciences to something that Scripture doesn't either directly say or by implication assume. Or make clear. And finally, we should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. We should emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. If you came here tonight thinking, hey, he's going to tell me now that, you know, there's there's a... a, a He has sealed the deal for me to never in any way, shape, or form wonder or question or doubt uh, God's Word in any way, shape, or form. That, That was not the point of this talk. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, everything we believe about Christ and His church and God's Word comes through what? Faith. You have to have faith. Tim Keller often says, to skeptics that he's evangelizing in New York City that they cannot prove that God doesn't exist anymore, that he can prove that God does exist definitively. Why would he say that? Because we believe by faith. I close with this quote, and then we'll get out of here. The big problem... Oh, wait, that's not the one I wanted to use... If Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and hence the source and goal of its entire life, true growth is only possible in obedience to him. Conversely, if the church becomes detached from Jesus Christ and his word, it cannot grow, however active and successful it may seem to be. I'll read it again. If Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and hence the source and goal of its entire life, true growth is only possible in obedience to Him. Conversely, if the church becomes detached from Jesus Christ and His Word, it cannot grow however active and successful it may seem to be. So true growth for churches and true growth in Christ might not always be visible to the human eye because God works often in ways that we do not understand now I probably left you tonight with far more questions than answers that's somewhat intentional so that you will dig yourself you have that list of resources on the back of your page there's many other resources next week when we return Nick will be leading us through a study of the doctrine of God So we have scripture, God, man, Christ, the church, Holy Spirit. That's what we'll be covering over the next six weeks. Let's pray and we will be dismissed. Father, we love you. We thank you. Your word is sufficient. It is clear. It is authoritative. It is necessary. I pray for our own hearts. That you would give us hearts, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we would be a people who desire to grow deeper and deeper and deeper in our knowledge and our joy of Scripture. That we would meditate on it, we would study it, that we would memorize it, as if our lives depended on it, because in many ways our lives do depend on it. As we leave this place, may we be encouraged that the collected 66 books that you have given us in these nice, leather bound books that we have is enough for us. Give us the faith to believe that, not just with our words, but in our hearts and minds. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.